Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number seven of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Welcome back. I'm uh, excited to get started with in part three here this evening. Um, I find it really interesting the way that this book moves towards its ending, not to mention the ending towards which it moves. Uh, so I'm particularly excited not only to talk about book three of this book, but really excited to finish my rereading of the ending of this. Uh, this is one of those things when I was reading it through for the first time throughout, I was like, whoa, I can't wait to read this <laughs> second time because I really need to read this a second time. Um, so already one of the things I'm going to, uh, uh, we're going to be doing tonight is kind of going back and looking at moments from earlier on in the book, which now look a lot different, you know, which I only noticed the second time through. Um, so anyway, lots of really fun stuff to talk about tonight. But first, announcements, as always. Um, of course, uh, as you would suspect, our announcements uh, this uh, tonight are primarily about our fundraising campaign, which is coming to an end. This is the final week of our fundraising campaign, which has been going on since Hobbit Day on September 22nd, and is coming to its grand culmination on Saturday, Halloween, this week, just in a couple days. Um, We've been doing great uh, with the fundraiser. I've been so encouraged uh, by the generous response we've gotten from you guys, from our from our listeners. Um, here's our latest update on the fund. Our first initial goal was $20,000. That's enough for us to basically keep the lights on to be able to pay for our software subscriptions and all the, all the programs and things that we have to pay for and use in order to keep making our classes and keep making our classes available and, and all those other things that, that we do. Um, we have have blown past that uh, that initial goal. We're at twenty six thousand one hundred and eighty five dollars right now. Our secondary goal of thirty five thousand dollars. If we can raise thirty five thousand dollars, that will give us enough to pay for all of our certification fees. As a lot of you know, um, we are in the process of going through the cert. We, we've been in the process of uh, doing the whole certification thing. Um, this is a long process. And we're coming, the exciting thing is that we're coming to, uh, we're moving into the final stages of that process, which has been really cool. Uh, the challenging thing is that the final stages of that process are where you have to pay thousands of dollars in fees. Uh, so we're trying to scrape up enough money to do that uh, and to uh, to complete our, pro our, uh, our, our way through that process. But we kind of need some help in order to get there. So that's... Um, that's sort of the primary thing that we're uh, that we're sort of hoping that we're sort of shooting for with our secondary thirty five thousand dollar goal. So we're we're uh, we're already as I said we're already moving up uh, uh, towards that. I'm hoping we'll be able to get there by the end of our webathon on Halloween night. Um, one quick reminder, of course, in addition to the. Uh, uh, to our sort of institutional goals, and you know what we will, what Signum will be able to do uh, with the with the money that we raise. Um, just a reminder as well, about especially since this is our Mythgard Academy class. Um, if you would like to participate in choosing our Mythgard, you know, if, if there's another book you would really like for us to do the same kind of treatment, you know, as we've been doing going through Jonathan Strange, Mister Norrell, um, then uh, remember that all of our um, everybody who donates twenty five dollars or more to the campaign gets voting rights. Um, you'll get uh, the opportunity to vote, and you vote. Uh, you basically get as many votes as you contribute dollars. So uh, the the more you donate, the 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 more say the more happy we will be to do uh, to do whichever book you like. Um, 
So uh, anyway, so the voting rights go with uh, with donations, and if you donate a hundred dollars or more, then you are placed on the Council of the Wise, which is the the subset of people uh, who nominate the books, who choose, you know, who get to suggest books and get to decide on sort of the slate of finalists, which then gets brought to the electorate as a whole. So, uh, uh, so don't forget that that's how those things work. So again, that's either a either a one-time donation of a hundred dollars or monthly donations, which uh, which which add up to a hundred dollars uh, or more over the course of the year. Um, either way, that gets you on the council of the wise. So, uh, so just to to remember that that's uh, that that's how that works. Um, I have loved watching the democratic process. The democratic process has had wonderful results so far in the first two years of the Mythgard Academy, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, where you all on the electorate are going to bring us next uh, over the course of uh, the rest of this coming year. Um, but I mentioned our webathon on Halloween, and that's the other thing I wanted to make sure to to tell you about, um, because this is a this has been an annual tradition. Now this is the third year we've done our our, our end of campaign webathon, um, and it's been a lot of fun. This is a, a it's a it's going to be a, a something like twelve hours uh, this year again. Um, we we went big the first year. Cut back a little bit last year and only did about six hours or so, six seven hours uh, of webathon last year. Uh, but we pulled out the stops again this year and we're like, no, 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 no. We have so much stuff we wanted to do, we just couldn't uh, contain it all within a, a mere six hour webathon. So we're going to start broadcasting at about ten a.m. and we're going to go all the way through probably nine ten p.m. Eastern time. Um, let me um, uh, show you a little bit more about the the, sort of the schedule for the webathon. Um, we have a bunch of uh, uh, we, many different segments representing all of the different uh, open programs that we do at MythGuard. Um, our first segment at ten, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time is going to be Fun with Words in the Hobbit, um, where we're going to bring in Sparrow Alden, who just finished her thesis on uh, you know doing analysis of words and style in the Hobbit. We're going to be playing lots of fun games, talking about um, what we can see and what we can learn from about Tolkien's style, from his, uh, from his choice of words and pattern of words. We're going to be playing uh, fun games about uh, and sort of fun trivia games with uh, with with the hobbit it's going to be it's it's going to be a lot of fun then at noon is going to be the, a special Mythgard Academy class, a special one-shot Mythgard Academy class on the Father Christmas letters. Um, if you've never read J.R.R. Tolkien's letter from letters from Father Christmas, uh, you certainly should. Uh, they're wonderful. You can do that in a sitting. You know, it really should only take you. Um, well, I was going to say, you know, we take you an hour or two, you might sp- want to spend more time than that looking carefully at the beautiful pictures that he drew to accompany those, uh, uh, those letters. But, and there's a, there's a wonderful edition of, uh, the Father Christmas letters with, uh, with all the, the full color facsimile, uh, images, um, not only of the, 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 the pictures that Tolkien drew to accompany the letters, um, but of the letters themselves, the, the, you know, his beautiful, uh, writing with all of the, uh, snarky annotations by the North Polar Bear and all that stuff. So, um, anyway, I'm going to be, I'm going to be doing a class session on that at noon, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, then at 2 p.m., from 2 to 4, we're going to do the second installation of Where on Middle-Earth is Wigand. Um, that's when I'm going to do a live stream of the um, 
uh, from uh, from the Lord of the Rings Online. Um, I did you remember I announced I did that a couple of weeks back. Several of you were able to to join me for that. Um, the difference this time, last time I, I, I sort of took people on a tour of some interesting places in Middle Earth and thinking about the way that uh, Lotro has done adaptation um, from Tolkien's works. This time, I'm going to be taken to places that I've never seen before in the game. My highest level character is only level 65 out of 100. I've never been to Rohan. I've never been, um, I've basically never been south of Lorien um, in Middle Earth. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what I'm going to see. I'm going to get to see, uh, you know, some places in Rohan, and um, and uh, I think they're going to take me to the Argonoth. That's that's kind of what I'm what I'm hoping. Um, and uh, uh, and I don't know, uh, I, I'm not sure if they can take me to Minas Tirith. Minas Tirith just literally opened yesterday. Um, they just they just sent out the update that contains Minas Tirith for the first time in the game. It's really cool. Uh, so I'm very excited to see what I see there, and you can kind of join me on my uh, 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 journey of uh, discovery there. Sort of share the wonder of the first time I see the you know the way that they've rendered these places in Middle Earth. I'm really excited. So that's what's going to happen from two to four p.m. Um, at four o'clock, from four to five. These, of course, these times are all Eastern time. Um, we're going to have readings from the Flash Fiction Contest winners. Uh, many of you have participated in our Almost an Inkling Flash Fiction Contest, which has been going on uh, during the course of the whole campaign. So many really cool subs- uh, submissions for that. Um, and uh, our winners from each week are, are going to be uh, coming on live to do their readings of their uh, uh, sort of uh, their selected pieces. Um, that's going to be really cool. So, so that's from four to five. At five p.m., we're going to have a. Um, um, oh, and Sarah, this is uh, not just first place, but uh, first, second, and third. Yeah, yeah. Everybody who placed. There's going to be a, a whole large ensemble of people who are going to be reading. It should be very cool. Um, at uh, at five p.m. Um, is going to be a special guest lecture. This is uh, this is a really neat opportunity. I don't know. Uh, some of you perhaps don't know Dimitri Fimi, um, uh, who teaches over in Wales at Cardiff. Dimitri Fimi is just one of the best, probably you know, one of the top five Tolkien scholars in the world, um, and uh, d- does wonderful stuff not just with Tolkien but with fantasy literature and mythology in general. Um, and she's going to be giving a special guest lecture, special live guest lecture on Halloween in literature. Um, looking forward, uh, looking to uh, sort of rites and traditions for Halloween as we can see them reflected in literature over time. Um, and I promise you, you will learn some new things uh, in that lecture that you didn't know before. Uh, Demetra is really, is just a wonderful, wonderful lecturer. Um, so that's a, that's a, that's a it's, a, it's a real special treat. And then after that, at 6.30... Uh, Eastern, we're going to do a special episode of the Silmarillion Film Project, uh, where Dave and Trish and I are going to host a discussion of sort of fantasy casting. From the ever since we started doing this, one of the first things that we keep have been getting from people. Everyone has an opinion about, like, oh, this actor should play this, or, you know, basically people have been kind of voicing the way that they've always pictured certain characters in Silmarillion. And what I keep saying during the show, you know, when we're doing the Silmarillion film project, is like, okay, it's not time to talk about that yet, or, you know, people are like, oh, I think this actor should play Turin, and I'm like, dude, we're not going to get to Turin for, like, seven years. Like, let's not worry about that right now. Um, So, you know, I've been trying to stay focused to keep us kind of moving through through the thing. 
But this is something that lots of people have been wanting to talk about. So we're going to take this sort of special occasion to take time aside and just kind of indulge ourselves in this sort of game. Um, how do you picture these characters? Are there actors or actresses that you kind of have pegged in your mind that would be perfect for particular characters? Um, do you have... Uh, particular actors or actresses that you would just really love to plug into the Silmarillion somewhere. Um, you know, come join the discussion and debate, and and uh, you know we'll sort of see where things go with that. That's I'm uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. So, um, and and that should end. You know, probably we rarely go over time in the Silmarillion film project, so that's scheduled to end at eight thirty. So that should be fine. Anyway, that's all of the stuff that's going on at the Webathon, and there's going to be prize drawings and all that kind of thing. So um, it's um, it's just going to be it's just going to be a great time. If you register for the event, and I'll I'll uh, paste the um, the registration link for you right here in the chat for those who are live. Um, for those of you who are not, again, you can find it here. Just go go here to the the annual fun page. And then here to register for the Halloween extravaganza. Um, uh, anyway, so just if you re- register for the event, it it'll get you in all day. You can come and go as you please. You don't have to actually make the you know twelve hour commitment. Um, but uh, you know that it that all that that uh, that will work in that will work as I say for the whole day. So hope to see a bunch of you on Halloween to join us for our uh, uh, for our. Uh, Excellent webathon with lots and lots of really fun activities. Now, onwards. Let's back to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. So last time, we ended with the consideration of fairies uh, and their natures. And in particular, I was kind of halfway making a, a sort of devil's advocate or, well, gentleman with a thistle down hair's advocate argument um, uh, for the gentleman, or that is to say, to kind of undermine the assumptions that we might make about the gentleman with the thistle-down hair. Now, it's, you know, here I am saying, like, well, it would be a rash assumption to say that, like, the guy who cheerfully talked about pushing children out of, you know, uh, uh, to smash on the courtyards, not only as a good thing to do to your enemies, but as an appropriate way to to celebrate and commemorate the occasion on which you pushed your enemy's children out of, you know, steeples. Um, it, I, I, this might seem like a, a sort of a difficult, kind of difficult behavior to defend, you know. Um, it might seem pretty obvious that the gentleman is not really a nice guy. Um, the word wicked is thrown around a lot in connection with fairies in general, right? Some wicked fairy, right? Um, and it kind of seems relatively safe, um, uh, relatively safe to ascribe that word uh, to the gentleman with the thistle-down hair. Um, I was not, as I said last time, really earnestly attempting to undermine that. I'm not trying to argue that we should be entirely in favor of the way that he acts, and that we should think that the things that he does are perfectly fine. However, I do think that there are definitely elements in this story that should prompt us to be cautious about the conclusions that we come to. At the very least, it's not that it necessarily must change our mind about it, but it should perhaps qualify our view towards it, if you see what I mean by that. That is to say, um, 
it's not that I would argue against saying uh, the gentleman with the thistle-down hair is wicked, but I would advocate adding at the end he's wicked from a human standpoint or from a human point of view, right? Um, does he show no consideration for human life? Yes, he absolutely does not care about human life. Um, he doesn't show the slightest qualm about killing people. He seems quite to enjoy killing people. Um, but that's not impossible for us to understand, right? That is to say... Why is it, and this is going to sound unnecessarily facetious, but why is killing people such a big deal, right? It's a big deal to us, because we're people, right? Um, just as wolf hunting is a big deal to wolves, right? And remember, we saw that hunting scene, which the gentleman was cheerfully attending, right? Uh, Neil Ottenstein is... Uh, thinking about uh, ants and Janice Hopper thinking about mayflies, right? Which uh, both of which seem to me perfectly appropriate. Philip Lord says we have to be careful to, you know, about judging him by our moral standards that he's almost alien to humans. Um, yeah, yeah, or at least different. <laughs> that is to say. The, I, the concept of fairies challenges the assumption that we make about human primacy, right? Um, yeah, so I get the, the hunting parallel is one obvious thing, right? Killing other things... Well, th think about the several different examples that um, that several of you have brought up, right? Um, Neil, you're right. We would kill, we would slaughter hundreds and thousands of ants without a qualm just because they're obnoxious or annoying, right? Or because we find them repulsive in some way. A way which is perfectly arbitrary to us and would look inhumanly cruel and arbitrary to ants, right? Um, I mean, remember the vanity of the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, right? Remember how, how, how he is just, he's all, it's all about the physical appearance, and he cannot stand the unsightliness of ugly people? And this makes him sound so shallow, and it makes, what would ants think of us, right? When we see a bunch of perfectly attractive as far as I know, ants, right, from an ant point of view, they're, maybe they're gorgeous ants from, a, from an ant point of view, but we look at them and we're like, ooh, disgusting, kill them all, right? Why exactly is that different, right? <laughs> Not inhumanly, you're right, inantly, John, that, that, is, that, is, that is better. Um, um, and or, or about, um, so, so, you know, so Neil, I'm thinking about your ants parallel there. Um, what about, you know, animals that are things that we would kill without, you know, other, other things we would kill, we'd kill even without noticing them, right? And there are other things that we would kill 
and enjoy the killing of them, right? Like hunting, right? Not just hunting for food, not just hunting to protect our lands. Wolf hunting, you know, you can kind of defend wolf hunts, right? If the wolf are, if the wolves are are are, are killing your livestock, then there's a certain uh, utility in in hunting and killing wolves. Um, but uh, sorry, I forgot to uh, clear off my screen here. Um, but but there are many times, many people uh, simply hunt for the pleasure of hunting, right? Nick Morato point, uh, says uh, 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 fox hunting. That's a, it's an excellent example. Um, absolutely. So if we look at the gentleman with the thistle down hair and say um, he is wicked and cruel for enjoying killing people. I kind of like, it's hard, because on the one hand, it's like, taking pleasure in murdering people. Why, but it doesn't seem controversial to call that evil, right? And, and yet again, the idea of the, the concept of fairies challenges the basic, um, uh, the basic uh, uh, sort of premise of that statement. It's not to say that killing people is fine and not a big deal. But we can perhaps, if we try, come to understand this very gentleman's point of view, or at the least, um, perhaps experience a little bit more discomfort in dismissing him. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, but Tom, I agree with you. Tom Hillman says, we, we have only one fairy to judge by, really. I mean, it's true, we haven't really gotten to know any other fairies in this story. Uh, uh, and Tom goes on to say, even if all fairies behave like the gentleman... Uh, we would still be justified in defending ourselves against him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but, yes. Exa- no, it's it's not, again, it's not about saying, oh, he's fine and there isn't a problem here. Right? Like, seriously, what is Lady Pole whining about? Right? Um, what is Stephen Black's problem? Right? It's not that. It's not that. Um, but rather just to sort of that we kind of need to be cautious because one thing that we see um, and the passage that we ended with last time is um, is uh, what the one of the ones in which I am most interested that is that passage that describes his song and the way that everyone responds to him um, Jonathan Strange speaks of the uh, you know he uh, says to the Grey Steels in tonight's reading um, that all fairies have more magic in their little finger than the greatest magician ever had. Um, and remember, the footnote claims that this is a wildly romantic idea, and that there's plenty of evidence that there are some fairies whose magic is really not very good at all. Um, so, Jonathan Strange, according to the footnote writer, is uh, exaggerating this fact. However, um... However, um, we still see them. The, I mean, we, we the gentleman again, who 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 is our primary fairy uh, throughout this story. He has a different relationship with nature, right? He has a different relationship with the world, um, and it is like the relationship that magicians have, um, and yet far more profound, um, and. And again, he knows the names of all 
the, you know, he can call to trees and the wind by, by, by their names, right? He can, um, he, he can speak with them in their own language. Um, so again, it's just another thing, as I was suggesting last time, that we sort of uh, need to at least sort of pause and consider when within the frame of this book we say, oh, the fairies are awful, right? The fairies are wicked, dangerous to humans. They certainly are. Um, but of course, this is important for the sake of this story. I mean, you know, this is not a mere curio, right? This is not a mirror like, hey, let's sort of take these passages out and have fun thinking about this theoretical question. It becomes a central one uh, in this... Um, it becomes a central one in this portion of the story um, because, of course, increasingly, as we see the conflict between Norrell and Strange, uh, the, the, the question of fairies and magic related to fairies it, it takes a central place, Right? The question about fairy servants and whether or not it is appropriate to ally oneself to fairies is one of the core disagreements between Strange and Norrell, right? Um, but uh, at the same time, thinking about that disagreement, we need to also consider the most mysterious figure of all, right? That is, of course, the Raven King. Um, the one who really sort of, you know, and in my view, I mean, the Raven King is really at the heart of this entire book. Um, I sort of think that the Raven King is, in a, in a, in a, in a strange kind of way, the protagonist of this entire novel. Um, but anyway, certainly, the reason I, I want to I want to start with the Raven King for a minute here. Uh, Love how I throw out the word "start" half an hour into class, but anyway, um, because he, you know, I'm inter- what I'm really interested in looking at tonight. Um, the thing that really strikes me about this first section of book three is that we get a lot about the boundaries between England and fairy, right? The the way in which things kind of come across and bleed over, um, and the Raven King is like the person, the personification in a sense, of that boundary, right? The Raven King is sort of neither one nor the other. He is human by birth, but he was raised in fairy. Um, he He is not like a normal person, not only because of his remarkable magical gifts, um, but because of his fairy training and upbringing. Um, but yet he's also not a, he also is a human. He's not just a fairy either. Um, he is a human who makes his home at least for a long time, made his home in England uh, and uh, uh, and becomes the king uh, of Northern England. So um, we have, you know, several views on the Raven King. Of course, one is uh, Jonathan Strange's view, which is an, as the story goes on, increasingly reverential view uh, of the Raven King. At the age of 14, this is, of course, a quotation from Jonathan Strange's uh, book, at the age of 14, he had already created the system of magic that we employ today, or rather, that we would employ if we could. Most of what he knew we have forgotten. He was a perfect blending of fairy magic and human organization. Their powers were wedded to his own terrifying purposefulness. So that's generally what fairies lack, is purposefulness, 
terrifying or otherwise, right? Purposefulness and organization. Remember, uh, Strange has already described the way that you know fairies is this sort of feckless, careless people. You know, they they they're they're terrible farmers. You know, they they just they don't plan, right? Um, but uh, but they do have power, right? So. Here's the Raven King being the perfect combination. There is no reason... Well, perfect, I guess, depending on your point of view. Uh, there is no reason that we know of to explain why one stolen Christian child should suddenly emerge the greatest magician of any age. Other children, both before and since, have been held captive in the borderlands of fairy, but none other ever profited from the experience in the way he did. By comparison with his achievements, all our efforts seem trivial, insignificant. Um, this seems to me, on the one hand, to state the case quite clearly and to emphasize not only what is um, the way in which he sort of becomes the prototypical blend of that which is human with that which is fairy, but also the way in which he is completely unique um, and unimitatable by modern people, right? Um Again, Strange has an increasing... See, his reverence seems to increase as uh, you know, as his rebellion against Norrell goes along. This is all well and good. So, but does this make Norrell wrong? I mean, if, if, if Jonathan Strange is accurate in his description here, does this make Norrell wrong? I would... Um, uh, I would urge you to remember the examination that we did of Norrell's comments on the Raven King in that final, that last conversation, at least last to this point, conversation that he had with Jonathan Strange, right? After Strange had broken with him um, and during that sort of attempted that is attempted by, on Norrell's part, attempted reconciliation uh, with Jonathan Strange, he explained about his attitude towards the Raven King, his own juvenile or at least youthly um, uh, you know, desire for the Raven King and 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 how he tried to summon him and uh, and 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 idolized him, and how he has grown increasingly cautious. I have to say, if, when I put this paragraph next to Norrell's words about the Raven King in that passage, Norrell's assessment actually kind of sounds balanced and mature. He recognizes the Raven King's power. But doesn't just, um, but doesn't just treat him as, you know, some kind of god, right? Um, he questions him, and points out, like, yes, it's true, he was the greatest magician of any age. Um, and remember the comment that Norrell would add, right? At the age of fourteen, he had already created the system of magic that we employ today. Wow, isn't that awesome? Or rather, that we would employ, if we could, most of what he knew we have forgotten. Why? Why, says Norrell. Why? Why have we forgotten it? That's the thing that Strange never says, but Norrell said. Yeah, Sarah, because he left. Because he left. He, the Raven King, left and took the magic with him. Right, it's his fault that we're. It's not. He's not just this ideal that we now. Gosh, isn't it sad? We just can't attain that ideal anymore. It's not that. It's not how it works. Right. It's not how it has worked. He left us, and he took the magic with him. And if we now can't, if we can now have forgotten this, if we can now no longer do this stuff, that's because that's what so he 
left us behind and took it away from us, and so all we can do, as Norrell says, is try to do what we can on our own, not just try to recreate it. Because, again, as Strange himself argues, nobody knows how the Raven King got this, right? Um, As Strange points out, no other abducted Christian child has ever become like the Raven King, right? This is not like a thing that happens if you just consort with fairies enough. So let's consort with fairies more, and then, you know, we'll be able to recover the Raven King's magic. There's not really any hope for that. So anyway, I mean, again, I think it's interesting to see the ways in which, I think, Norrell's version, when we finally hear it, actually sounds more balanced. And Strange here sounds... Adam sounds a little young and foolish to me. Um, and I think it's really interesting to see that shift um, right at the moment, you know, right at the moment where Norrell, you know, when Strange goes away to the peninsula and then he comes back and he's a, a hero and what he's accomplished with magic has been wonderful, you know, working with the Duke of Wellington and and Norrell is looking petty and awful and cowardly and everything else. And then when they break with each other, there's this reversal. And, you know, Strange's stock is sort of falling, while Norrell's is at least kind of called uh, into question. Um, So, and again, just to bring it back to the Raven King, I think it's important for us to recall both sides of this. We're in a very, from a very, looking at things from a very strangeite point of view through most of tonight's reading. Um, but uh, I think that it's important for us to kind of qualify that and to remember uh, these things. But more, um, more on, uh, on, on, on fairies. Um, yeah, interesting. Carita uh, uh, says, did you notice that the gentleman uh, called uh, the fairy who stole the child Raven King very wicked? Yeah, I did notice that. Um, Carita, I wonder exactly even what he means by that, right? Carita um, sort of pointing out, like, if he, uh, you know, calls uh, uh, calls this other guy very wicked, what would he have looked like to us, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, because there seems to me a, at least a certain chance that he might look benevolent to us, maybe. Maybe. I don't know, right? Um Michael suggests perhaps it means he was ugly, yeah. Perhaps he says he was very wicked because he had like a nasty birthmark on his face or something. I I don't know, but see, here I am poking petty fun at the gentleman with thistle-down hair, doubtless proving his point. Um, But anyway, back to fairies, back to fairies. So um, here's this again from Jonathan Strange's book. Um, Here's another... um, um, here's, Here's another example of fairy behavior for us to sort of discuss. And I, 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 I'll read it. And again, the question is, how do we... Jo- A, what happened here? And B, how do we understand... This? How does this help us understand fairies better? Uh, this is, of course, the story about uh, the young women of Allendale who come uh, uh, to make friends right, with the fairy army and try to convince them uh, not to destroy the town. Um, and talks about the one girl who steps forward and kisses the fairy soldier. He took well enough to the kiss and allowed her to kiss him again. Then he paid her back in kind. Another soldier rose from the ground and opened his mouth. 
Out of it came a sad, wailing sort of music. The first soldier, the one the girl had kissed, began to coax her to dance with him, pushing her this way and that with his long white fingers until she was dancing in a fashion to suit him. This went on for some time until she became heated with the dance and paused for a moment to take off her cloak. Then her companions saw that drops of blood, like beads of sweat, were forming on her arms, face, and legs, and falling to the snow. This sight terrified them, and so they ran away. The strange army never entered Allendale. It rode on in the night towards Carlisle. The next day the townspeople went cautiously up to the fields where the army had camped. There they found the girl, her body entirely white and drained of blood, while the snow around her was stained bright red. What happened here? And by the way, when I say what happened here, one of the really cool things... Um, remember at the beginning of the book, I was emphasizing how interesting I thought it was the way in which Clark doesn't reveal things to us, right? How many things are said, especially the stuff about English magic, right? Um, which are just sort of thrown out there and taken for granted and never explained, and we come in like, we are so ignorant about English magic, and, and, and we are, you know, as eager to find out more about it as uh, the, you know, the sort of the London society when Mr. Norrell first shows up. Um, you know, we're like one of the people at uh, at that first party at the house of the woman whose name I forget now, um, you know, where he first had his first public appearance in London. Um, so anyway, so we know nothing. We know so much less than almost anybody else in the book. Now, all of a sudden, we know more than almost any of the other characters, right? Um, we can now figure out what has happened um, when they don't have any idea what has happened, even when it's about magical things. I want to come back to this later on, um, when we, I when I, I want to because I want to discuss the scene with uh, Childermas in the square, right when he takes a bullet uh, for Mister Norrell. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the whole book. I find that scene just awesome, really fascinating. So I want to come back and look at that. It's my goal to get there by the end of class. Um, and again, the question I'm going to want to be asking when we get there is, what happened? Mr. Norrell doesn't know what happened. What happened? Anyway, so, uh, but but again, so I love the fact that all of a sudden, and I don't even know when it happened exactly, but now all of a sudden we know more than everybody else, and that's really cool. And here's another example. We have more data here about fairies. We actually know more about fairies than Jonathan Strange does because we've met the gentleman, right, and followed him around for a little bit. So assuming he's in any way indicative of how fairies are, um, what do we, uh, what do we make of this? What happened? First, literally, what has happened? Do we know what's going on here? What what framework do we have to understand this scene, right? I mean, I, I when looking at a scene like this, we kind of have to start with what we know, right? Um, so let's just start with the fairies and their interaction with the girl here, 
What do they do with a girl when she comes, when they see her and kiss her? They... Are they interested in the kissing? It's interesting, right, that we have... The whole thing is explicitly sexual in its context, right? She's offering herself to them sexually. They don't really seem interested. It says, you know, he took well enough to the kiss, right? It didn't seem to not like the kiss. And he paid her back in kind. Um, that wording by Strange is interesting there, right? Does that necessarily mean... Um, does that necessarily mean that um, uh, he liked it and was kissing her back? That is, does that suggest a, a sort of a, you know a, a reciprocity of sexual interest on his part? I don't think so. At least I wouldn't assume that necessarily. Um, it could be quite literal. I mean, I guess if this were a human man, yes, I would assume that, but not in this case. Right, she gives him a kiss. He gives her a kiss back. Right, he reciprocates the gift. Um, but that, but what in a purely human relationship would be sort of the natural escalation? That doesn't happen. Instead, what do we get? Dancing. Right. Well, that we've seen before. Right. This is what you know when. Um, Remember the first thing that the gentleman with the thistle-down hair does when he sees Lady Paul, or the almost the soon-to-be Lady Paul, right? When he sees dead Miss Wintertown, he looks at her and he's exclaiming about her beauty. Oh, so beautiful she is, right? Again, without knowing anything, which at that time we don't really know anything, that kind of, we could mistake, easily mistake that for sexual interest on his part. But he doesn't seem interested in her sexually at all. How does what is what does the ladies what does Lady Pole's beauty mean to the gentleman, right? Um, what does uh, um, what does it mean, right? Um, yeah, Donna Smith says it seems like they're using her like a doll. Philip Lord says he's a collector, right? Janice says she'd be an ornament. Uh, at his ball, John Molinos is using the word ornament as well. Philip Menzies suggests prize or trophy. Yeah, yeah, those seem to be more appropriate, right? Uh, notice even the way that, like, on the one hand, the way that he's sort of guiding her in the dance is simple enough, right? I mean, she doesn't know the steps of his fairy dance, so of course he's leading and he's showing her how to dance. But the way that that's described suggests far more than he took the lead in the dance that they were doing, right? began to coax her to dance with him, pushing her this way and that with his long white fingers until she was dancing in a fashion to suit him. All of that language, right? The coaxing to dance makes her sound like a pet, right? Like you would try to coax your dog into doing a particular thing. Um, but then, then, but then she sounds like a puppet, like a doll, right? Pushing her with his fingers until her dancing suited him, right? Um, he's playing with her like a toy. Um, so we can seem to. I mean, I agreed. Uh, Karita was saying originally that. Um, you know, her first reaction was that the death of this girl is deeply, deeply creepy, and I agree. Um, it's it's a very eerie kind of story. Um, but again, we as readers are in a position to kind of understanding 
understand. We have a better, more intuitive understanding of fairy nature than either Jonathan Strange or anybody reading his book, right? So we can begin to kind of understand what was going on there, what's going on with her. We have seen no precedent for the the blood, right? Um, we saw him take Wadey Pole's finger, but that's different, right? Um, clearly contextualized in a different way. Um, Tom, uh, however, Tom Hillman very appropriately pointed out, he says, uh, I can only think of one other instance of someone sweating blood. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can only think of one too, Tom. Um, it's not ever mentioned in this book, so, you know, in some ways I'm always a little bit reluctant to bring in a connection which is not um, kind of native uh, to uh, to the story. Um, but no. John, it's not a, not the... Uh, uh, this happens in the HBO Vampire series? No, no, no. No, no. Not what I'm talking about. Not what I'm talking about. Um, uh, of course, uh, Tom and I are referring to uh, Jesus the night before... the in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before the crucifixion. Uh, he, in his... Uh, I almost said agitation, uh, which is uh, an understatement. Um, you know, in his fear and suffering the night before, you know, as he is contemplating the crucifixion to come, um, sweats blood. Um, again, I, I, uh, I don't, um, I don't know that that's an appropriate connection exactly. I can imagine it. I, it, it kind of works a little bit for me. Not it, and doesn't have anything to do with the crucifixion exactly. It's nothing to do with um, with Jesus's story, but just Jesus's state when he did. Like if if we just consider that story about the Garden of Gethsemane as merely the precedent of somebody sweating, you know, the circumstances under which a human might be expected to uh, sweat blood, um, uh, th- that kind of fear. And anticipation of death. One can imagine that this girl might perhaps have been in such a situation, um, but I don't know. Again, it's not really how it's described. I mean, they're on her arms and face and legs. She's oozing blood everywhere. Um, it's weird, um, and I don't know how to understand it. A couple people um, have been. Um, you know, uh, Rico Richards was saying, is it the result of physical contact with the fairy as he guided her in the dance? Um, possibly. Um, he's pushing her this way and that, and the result is blood, right? Blood is welling out of her, maybe where he touches and say explicitly that it's where he touched her, but that seems possible. Um, others are saying it's like a sacrifice, James Pace says, is it actually kind of does bring it back in a sense. Uh, there is a kind of further parallel with Jesus, right? That she is sort of an offering, um, you know, uh, you know, one couldn't go so far as to say, you know, by her stripes they are healed, but but her death does seem to avert the destruction of the town. And Janice, it is like the fairy tale where the girl dances till she dies. And that's exactly the kind of state that uh, protracted over years that we see Lady Pole in, right? This is what is bothering uh, Lady Pole. Um, uh, that is, you know she's being you know dr- steadily drained of her own vitality, um, but remember, 
Is this happening? Why is it? Because is she being persecuted by the gentleman with the thistle down hair? I mean, from his point of view, uh, no. She's being very well treated. She's privileged, right? Um, and he assumes that she's enjoying herself very, very much. Now we know her own viewpoint um, on uh, on the whole situation. So again, is this a sacrifice? Yes, possibly. Is that how the fairies look at it? You know, do they look at this and say, "Yes, we shall accept her blood, and for the in exchange for her blood, we shall spare your town." I, I have a hard time with that. Um, it's possible, of course, um, uh, but that's um, um, I don't know. We don't really necessarily see. I, I mean. The gentleman doesn't really seem to think that way, exactly. Um, he doesn't seem to care about human blood really enough, I think, even to kind of think about it this way. Um, but uh, anyway, um, and of course, John, yes, it's true that uh, Allendale is not very strategic. It may well be they were just going to move on anyway, right? And this is just a totally like she was pretty and he was dance she he was making her dance and she danced until she dropped dead um and her life is kind of oozing out of her uh because of what they are you know he is kind of making her do this fairy dance you know in some sense he's kind of you could understand it as he's sort of elevating her you know sort of incorporating her into um into sort of the fairy world in a way that's just unsustainable for her human body and her human spirit, and she dies as a consequence. He doesn't see... He's not killing her. He's not sucking her life away. He's just um, dancing, and then, oh, oh, she died. You know, oh, the toy broke, right? It broke the doll. Oh, well, it was fun for a little while, right? And then they move on, right? Um, uh, yeah. Now, Philip, you're right that they were sacrificing themselves, and I don't doubt that the people of Allendale revere the memory of that girl as the woman who sacrificed her life to save the town. I'm talking about the fairy's point of view, right? I'm talking about understanding from the, what was happening from to them there. Um, and I'm not sure that a perceived and accepted sacrifice is what was going on there. I, I don't see um, much reason for us to think that that's how they viewed the situation. But again, the whole, the bigger point that I would make is just thinking about this scene, how different this looks from different points of view, right? Um, from the human point of view, from the fairy point of view, um, uh, even just from that initial, uh, you know, Karita, that initial, uh, uh, you know, fundamental re reaction of being really, really, finding it really eerie, and being creeped out by it, right? Um, you know, for, it, it, it's... Uh, whereas, again, from the fairy point of view, what's the big deal, right? Um, yeah, Karita, that's what I was thinking. Thank you for saying that. You've said it much better than I did. Uh, Karita said, possibly the fairy was just treating her like he would treat a fairy girl, but the human is too breakable to take it. Exactly, exactly what I was, what I was, uh, what I was thinking. Not that he would necessarily, you know push a fairy girl with his fingers, and but he wouldn't have to, right? He was, in doing that, he was kind of molding her, you know, sort of shoving her into the fairy girl mold, as it were, and, and she couldn't take it. Um, 
that's that's that that's a great creator. That's a great way of saying what my number one theory about what's happening here from the fairy point of view likely was. Um, but again, how different it looks from the human point of view. But that's that's the interesting thing here, right? Again, this whole section is about the interface between fairy and England, about the boundary between England and fairy, and the fact that the same things look so different from either side of that boundary is what makes the stuff that happens uh, in this part of the book really, really fascinating to me. Um, let's look at... Uh, let's go back for a second uh, to Arabella. Um, th- these are the uh, last two slides I didn't get to last time. Um, but I want to think about Arabella's enchantment uh, from the point of view of um, again what we know about this stuff, and again, thinking about this interaction between England and Fairy. And by the way, I uh, there are a bunch of things that reading through for the second time, I sort of now I'm like noticing that of course I I didn't and really had no would have had no reason to really notice the first time through there are several things which I am reading through and feeling stupid that I didn't <laughs> notice or figure out the first time as for instance you remember in the very first class that description of uh, uh Mr. Segundus and Mr. Honeyfoot being taken uh into the library of Mr. Norrell at Hurtview, and uh, and the way that the magic is described there, and how it just looked like totally went over my head uh, the first time I read it. I felt really silly when I read that again. Um, the same thing with Arabella. I totally, like, I was really slow on the uptake about what really happened to Arabella. Um, that is, I'm like, so who is the woman in black, and, and where is the... Because, I mean, I knew, like, obviously that there was something going on here, and that um, she was being enchanted in some way, but basically my problem was, I totally thought that the woman that... Uh, I'm forgetting the name of the neighbor, the guy who saw her out walking on the moors twice. Um, I totally thought that that was Arabella, or, you know, but that she was under an enchantment when she was out walking, and I'm like, why? But so the whole two Arabellas thing, and the swap, you know, the the fact that when she died, it wasn't really her. I, that was like went totally over my head, and I, I'm 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 embarrassed to confess it, but it did. Um, and uh, that is, I knew something was up, but I didn't I didn't follow it. I didn't track it. And though reading it for the second time, I was like. Uh, well, duh. So anyway, so I'm going to attempt to defend myself, um, or rather to deflect attention away from my own slowness in the uptake by drawing attention to Jonathan's slowness in the uptake. Um, I know, it's the moss oak, I know! Now I know, but I totally didn't get it before. But again, this is another instance. Um, like I said, I don't know exactly when it happened that we suddenly know more than all the characters, but it has definitely happened by now, or should have happened by now. Anyway, this is when Jonathan, after Jonathan comes home uh, from uh, the peninsula, and uh, uh, Arabella is telling him about her visits uh, to the Pole household. Well, I hope you will not find it dull in London. The gentleman with the thistle-down hair said that once you had tasted war, you were sure to be bored at home. Ha! No, indeed. What, with everything clean and just so, and all one's books and possessions so close to hand, and one's wife just before one, whenever one looks up? What does... Who did you say it was? The gentleman with the what sort of hair? Thistledown. 
I am sure you must know the person I mean. He lives with Sir Walter and Lady Pole. At least, I'm not sure he lives there, but I see him whenever I go to the house. Strange frowned. I do not know him. What is his name? But Arabella did not know. I have always supposed him to be a relation of Sir Walter or Lady Pole. How queer it is that I never thought to ask him his name. Have you, I have had, oh, hours of conversation with him. Have you indeed? I am not sure I approve of that. Is he handsome? Oh, yes, very. How odd that I didn't do not know his name. He is very entertaining, quite unlike most people one meets. And what do you talk of? Oh, everything. But it always ends in him wishing to give me presents. This gets, like, more and more inappropriate all the time, right? On Monday last, he wanted to fetch me a tiger from Bengal. On Wednesday, he wished to bring me to the queen. He wished to bring me the queen of Naples because he said she and I are so much alike that we were sure to be the best of friends. And on Friday, he wished to send a servant to bring me a music tree. A music tree, Arabella laughed. A music tree. He says that somewhere on a mountain with a storybook name, there grows a tree which bears sheep music instead of fruit, and the music is far superior to any other. I can never quite tell whether he believes his own tales or not. Indeed, there have been occasions when I have wondered if he is mad. <laughs> One can wonder. I always make some excuse or other for not accepting his presence. I am glad. I should not have cared to come home and find the house full of tigers and queens and music trees. Have you heard from Mr. Norrell recently? Okay. Um, what do we see here? What do you notice about this scene? What are we again? This is I, I I cite this as one example of now again before my experience as a reader. Uh, if I could eloquently sum up my experience as a reader in the first few chapters, my experience was what? Huh? Right? I, I was chasing along, trying to catch up, trying to orient myself in this very familiar sounding, but in many ways quite alien world. Um, now, right now, I'm like, oh, Jonathan, honestly. You are so oblivious, right? Um, how is it? How is it that Jonathan Strange's, uh, uh, as Carita says, how is it that his fairy alarms don't go off, right? How is that possible? Um, one parallel that I can't, um, I can't forbear to make, because I was just thinking of it constantly. In part, it's the style. Uh, in part, it's the parallel to the situation, is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, if you've never read Bram Stoker's Dracula, it is awesome, and you should read it. It's one of my favorite books. Um, probably in my top five, top ten favorite books in the world. Um, and uh, I used to teach it every year. Um, I can quote it not quite as readily as Tolkien, but pretty close. Um, anyway, Dracula is a, 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 a in in this sort of central section of Dracula. Stoker does the same thing, where through the first four chapters we see and come to understand who Dracula is and what's going on, and then he goes to England, and we have all this information that the people in England don't have, and they are slowly, slowly piecing things together. And uh, and it's it's not only really painful to see that, but we, there's all of this dramatic irony as they they say things, and we're like, no, you idiot. Um, but even it's not just the fact that some things that we happen to be privy to that they don't know. Like, they do know things. 
which they just sort of like forget about and don't think through. Um, and so here we can, we, I, I felt a, a very strong parallel um, with that, um, uh, with that situation here. Jonathan Strange should know, right? He should have some kind of suspicion. Um, but he doesn't. Why not? Why not? There are several reasons why not. I can think of three good reasons off the top of my head why Jonathan Strange doesn't have his radar going off. Right? Give me some reasons. One, um, yes, uh, um, let's see, Janice and Sarah Lagarde, um, um, Sarah Lagarde says, Strange uh, seems to be mostly taking Arabella for granted. Uh, Donna Smith says, Jonathan gets easily distracted with his ideas, his books, and doesn't always give Arabella his complete attention, or indeed any majority fraction of his attention, in fact. Um, he, yeah, doesn't take his wife seriously, uh, as Creator more harshly says. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think um, that's one of the th- of the three reasons I, I think that seemed to me a pretty good uh, description. Notice we can tell he's tracking with his wife. He's not always tracking with his wife, right? But we can tell he's tracking with her because he mentions that thing about tigers and queens and music trees, right? He's listening closely enough to follow along. So that's good. Better than he has on some other occasions. However, that doesn't mean he's really listening or really taking her at all seriously. Um, more. What else? Why else would he not twig to this? Another one, answer, this is a sort of a simple answer. John, exactly that. John Moline says, uh, is the gentleman surrounded by some don't-think-too-hard protective spell? Um, lots of folks don't think to ask or think about stuff you'd expect. Yeah, we see lots of example of that. Karita was just asking if there's fairy magic at play. Entirely possible. Remember, we got the, the clearest examples that we got of a similar kind of thing was in all of those presents that Stephen Black gets under the, those extraordinary circumstances, and the thing we keep being told is that nobody thinks it in the least bit odd. Right? Like when when the... Um, when the the servant from the shop comes chasing after him with this crown, right? Oh, you've forgotten this, Stephen, right? Uh, and he doesn't even doesn't even bat an eye of the fact that it's a silver crown that he's carrying in his hand. Um, or when uh, when the guy who had the the sort of the priceless heirloom scepter, you know, from like the King of Mercia or wherever that was from, right? You know, this like. A priceless historic uh, uh, um, artifact, uh, heirloom of his family, uh, and thinks it's perfectly appropriate to um, uh, to just give it to Stephen uh, as a reward for attempting and though failing to stop the thief, uh, and uh, because that'll teach his mom to be more careful, right? 
<laughs> less what like what is the increase in her carefulness going to accomplish now that uh the treasure has actually been stolen uh, and 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 i love the very uh, understated sentence where his servants who are following along to help catch the thief all you know nod because they see the very good sense of this right that kind of magic we've seen um happen quite a bit so it, it does seem entirely possible that um that yeah yeah Tom Hillman it's exactly like the psychic paper except without the paper um, exactly exactly um, that it's quite possible that that is at play and so we're seeing Jonathan Strange being manipulated by magic here now that's perfectly plausible though also kind of somewhat less interesting uh, solution here to why Jonathan doesn't uh, 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 doesn't uh, respond and I find it the more dissatisfying because of course it doesn't help me uh, in my own self-justification very much as I of course can't very well claim the same explanation for my own cluelessness but um, but the other thing is simply just context right this is it's it's not just that it's Arabella and he might not be paying the closest of attention to her um, but I think there's an important irony here. Whether or not his lack of perceptiveness is being sort of magically compelled, the irony remains that Jonathan Strange, Jonathan Strange, of all people, doesn't notice or think about fairy magic, right? Um, He's the one person in all of England who thinks most about fairy magic, right? Who would most want to find evidence that fairies are still at work among us, Um, most people, if they, you know, you might think that, like, the average English person's mind would sort of shudder back from the idea that this gentleman that uh, my wife has been talking to for hours, for years, you know, for, you know, frequently, anyway, that, 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 that he is a, perhaps a wicked fairy who might choose to abduct her at any minute. But not Jonathan Strange. I mean, I'm not saying he'd be blasé about Arabella's abduction, but he wouldn't be, his mind wouldn't shudder back from that. Right? He'd be no end delighted. But he believes that fairies have left England. He believes that there is no contact anymore between fairies and humans. And so it never even occurs to him to think that. Right? I mean, it's just entirely off his radar screen. Michael, great parallel. Michael. Jaskowski says, it's like John Segundus desiring to see magic and yet not recognizing the labyrinth spell, right? He's gone to Mr. Norrell in order to see if Mr. Norrell might be able to do magic and yet, and seeing magic being performed, having a, even some, you know, all this sort of sense that magic, and yet being unaware. That's a great parallel, Michael. Um, and again, as you, as you emphasize very rightly, Michael, the, the point of the irony is that he went there for the purpose of seeing it and still doesn't notice it when it's happening. Still can't process it when he's seeing it because he doesn't get it. Because he doesn't... It's Although he wants to think that it's true, he doesn't really believe that it's true. Um, Jonathan wants nothing more than to get a fairy assistant right to make contact with a fairy and yet when he hears about this it never even crosses his mind apparently that his wife was talking to a fairy though if you 
Though it would seem that if you would allow that as a possibility here, you know, if he would allow that as a possibility, it becomes obvious, right? I mean, who else would talk like that about music trees or even the Queen of Naples? I'll fetch you the Queen of Naples who talks like that. Um, But anyway, yeah, yeah. So that seems... uh, I think, a really important thing. Oh, good. Janice says, Jonathan doesn't think that fairies just manifest. They have to be called. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So you can you can add to that, Janice, and I think it's appropriate to add, not just the fact that he believes that this kind of thing doesn't happen anymore, but also that it's supposed to happen in a particular way, right? He has a kind of a doubly rigid idea about what can happen and what's supposed to happen, so that even his mind is sort of closed. Um, and you're right, both Sarah Lagarde and John Kingdon are, are talking about how um, Norrell is uh, um, is in part at fault here. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I, I, I agree. You know, Norrell's... Um, um, Norrell has been attempting to convince Jonathan from the beginning that this is not really possible. And it's interesting, you know... It, we might think, right? Strange seems to think that he's totally onto Norrell, right? He sees the holes in his own education. All those books that uh, um, that Mr. Norrell carefully didn't let him read, right? Strange thinks he sees all the things that Norrell tried to keep from him. Um, he's totally seen through Mr. Norrell, except he kind of hasn't, right? He has actually been shaped by Mr. Norrell's omissions, Um but he, uh, um, yeah, uh, even though he doesn't recognize it. John Moline says there's no mention of bells. No, Arabella doesn't mention bells here in this context, but uh, he has indeed. Jonathan has indeed heard about bells. Um, remember, he was just he was told by Sir Walter that that Sir Walter has asked the local parish not to ring their bells anymore because they distress Lady Pole, and yet Arabella hears bells um, when they're there on that first day. Uh, anyway, anyway, um, uh, okay, all right. Let's uh, and Michael, you're right. Michael also points out that uh, he doesn't recognize the presence of a fairy when he visits the king, at least not until later. Yes, it does. He's a little slow on the uptake on that day, too. Um, This is uh, Arabella's words. Pseudo-Arabella's words um, when uh, Strange is... when she comes back home right after she's been missing. Where in the world have you been? demanded Strange. Walking, she said. Her voice was just as it had always been. Walking? Arabella, are you quite mad? In three feet of snow? Where? In the dark woods, she said, among my soft sleeping brothers and sisters, across the high moors, among the sweet-scented ghosts of my brothers and sisters long dead, under the grey sky, through the dreams and murmurs of my brothers and sisters yet to come. Strange stared at her. What? Quite mad. Quite mad. Notice her madness. Is she mad? Yeah, of course. Right? Quite mad. What is madness? Right? Talked about madness before. What is... What is... 
but it's <laughs> at almost exactly the same time Sarah Lagarde and Janice Hopper said almost exactly the same thing uh, she's not mad she's a tree right well exactly it sounds mad to us right because we lack the key she's making perfect sense but we don't have the key to understand. We cannot see that we, we, we lack the perspective to understand the sense that she's making, but she's making perfect sense. But remember, that's true of all madness, right? Strange at the time lacked the key to the king's words, right? The king's, almost everything we heard the king say, okay, no, that's not true. A very large percentage of what King George said in his meeting with Jonathan Strange made perfect sense to us because we had the key. We knew about the gentleman with the thistledown hair, so we knew to whom he was speaking and you know with whom he was conversing and about what. Um, we could make a pretty good guess at the other half of King George's conversation, so we knew he was not mad, right? Um... Or at least, okay, when I say we knew he wasn't mad. At least it didn't sound mad to us. But again, that's that whole question. Fairies are mad, too. Right? Remember the link between fairies and madness and how they relate to madmen and why the Oriots, not only do they not have a cure for madness, they didn't seem to think madness needed a cure. In fact, why? It's, it's an advantage, right? It's a good thing. That thing that we call madness is just perceiving things from a different perspective. Likely perceiving things that are imperceptible to non-mad people, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, Philip, Jonathan still doesn't piece it together here, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, he's still very slow on the uptake here. But again... In his defense, so was I. Um, and it's this speech that I look back, it's the uh, the Dark Woods speech that I look back on with most chagrin that that was not sufficient clue for me to under at the time to understand what was going on. But I'm often pretty dumb when I read through things for the first time. It's one of the reasons I am such an avid rereader of things. But uh, But let's push forward here. Um, thinking about madness, thinking about the borders between uh, magic, between England and fairy. Um, let's um, let's go back a little bit more. Thinking back with Ara- let's trace back with Arabella here. Um, here's Ar- Arabella's first visit to the Pole household, and her looking at the paintings that she sees uh, in the room where Lady Pole is. On looking round the room in search of amusement, her eye was caught by a large painting. It was a landscape comprising woods and a ruined castle perched on top of a cliff. The trees were dark, and the ruins in cliff cliff were touched with gold by the light of the setting sun. The sky, by contrast, was full of light and glowed with a pearly color. A large portion of the foreground was occupied by a silvery pool in which a young woman appeared to be drowning. The second, a second figure bent over her. Whether man, woman, satyr, or fawn, it was impossible to determine, and, though Arabella studied their postures carefully, she could not tell whether it was the intention of the second figure to save the young woman or murder her. I love this painting. Um, first, let us count the things which sound very significant from a later point of view, which might not probably jump out at us at the time. 
right? I would include ruined castle perched on top of a cliff. We should think of... What should we remember? Ruined castle perched... Yes, good, exactly. Ru- uh, 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 all ruined... Philip Lord, exactly. Uh, ruins all belong to the Raven King, right? So the association of the Raven King and his magic with ruins, good. Okay, so we've got this fairy slash Raven King-ish heir to the forest, right? The dark trees, of course, we're... Those, especially within the Arabellan context later on, we might be thinking of the Malsoak. Um, more, more. What else do we see? What else do we notice? What else should kind of jump out at us here in this, just in this painting now? How about Silvery Pool? Silvery Pool? A large portion of the foreground was occupied by a silvery pool. Yeah, yeah, Neil, a viewing pool, right? Silver basins are used invariably for that uh, scrying spell that they do. The scrying, I think, is not a word ever used in this book. Um, uh, for the, the the conjuring of visions, right? Um, so that's kind of interesting, the idea, that idea of a silvery pool. But anyway, um, the... Um, ambiguity of the interactions between the woman, who seems to be definitively a woman, and the other person who seems to be not definitively human, possibly fairy, right? Um, Good, James says, the ambiguity of the figure's intentions sounds like fairies that we know. Yes, yes it does. Um, This painting would seem to be of sort of this danger, right? That is, we've got two realms of light and darkness, right? We've got the dark trees and ruins, and we've got the sky full of light and glowing with a pearly color. Um, We have the silvery pool as a kind of boundary. We have, uh, you know, the boundary between the air and the water, and that's the whole drowning thing, right? Just to, to, to cross that boundary, which is a dangerous boundary to cross, at least for very long. Um, and this uncertainty about the intentions of the second person. Are they are they dunking her, or are they pulling her out? Um, it's not really clear what their intentions are, if their intentions are kindly or malicious, or both, um, towards uh, the girl. So it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting little study of this whole thing. But then, wait, there's a second painting. The room seemed to be full of light, although the day was every bit as gray and forbidding as it had been before. So where does all this light come from? Wondered Arabella. Now mind, this is not um, this is not light within the paintings. This is light in the room around her, right? Um, and remember, this unevenness of light, this unexpected and inexplicable light, is something that John Segundus noticed in the library at Hertview back there in the beginning, the very first time we ever saw magic being performed. Okay, so where does all this light come from, wondered Arabella. It's almost as if it shines out of out, from, out of the paintings, but that is impossible. The paintings were all of Venice, and certainly the great quantities of sky and sea which they contained made the room seem somehow insubstantial. Um, are the paintings actually magical? John, I don't know. I mean, it the suggestion would seem to be there. Remember, when we had those initial descriptions by John Segundus, um, what he was noticing was that the light, it seemed different, right? Like the light that's coming in doesn't match up with what you see outside. As if the light is coming not from the place out the window, but from somewhere else, right? So to here, 
Um, there's the, now we've 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 seen all about how mirrors can be doors, right? It's almost like these paintings are windows to another place, right? And yeah, how about the fact, Sarah, that the paintings are of Venice? Isn't Venice an interesting thing? Again, this is a, one of the examples of things that I didn't notice the first time through, which I can't be blamed for not noticing, because I didn't know how... Imp- at the time, I had no idea how important Venice was going to be in this story, right? Um, oh, awesome, Carita. Fantastic connection. Um, Carita is recalling... Um, the letter in which Jonathan is doing his first descriptions of Venice and how he's looking down uh, into the water and he thinks he sees a drowning woman, right? He's, he, it's, it's, it's only a white glove under the water, right? But it looks like a woman who's been drowned. Um, very good connecting that with this first painting, right? Maybe this is the... So I guess he was drowning her, right? And she's been drowned, and now Jonathan Strange is seeing her corpse uh, in the uh, uh, in in the waters of Venice. Not literally, but it kind of looks that way, right? Um, but let's go back even further to the description of those Venetian paintings, those paintings which uh, Miss Wintertown's, which Mrs. Wintertown gives uh, to uh, the Poles upon their marriage. Mr. Norrell's gaze traveled from the young lady, right, the consumptive young lady on the couch over there, to the great gloomy painting that hung above her gloomy mind, not radiant with light, but gloomy, painting that hung above her, and he tried to recollect what he had been speaking of. It is a marriage, said the majestic lady. I beg your pardon, madam, said Mr. Norrell. But the lady only nodded in the direction of the painting and bestowed a stately smile upon Mr. Norrell. The painting which hung above the young lady showed, like every other picture in the room, Venice. English cities are, for the most part, built upon hills. Their streets rise and fall. And it occurred to Mr. Norrell that Venice, being built upon the sea, must be the flattest as well as the queerest city in the world. It was the flatness which made the painting look so much like an exercise in perspective. Statues, columns, domes, palaces, and cathedrals stretched away to where they met a vast and melancholy sky, while the sea that lapped at the walls of those buildings was crowded with ornately carved and gilded barges, and those strange black Venetian vessels that so much resemble the slippers of ladies in mourning. Okay. What do we see? It's a marriage, right? Said the majestic lady. That's all she says about the paintings. It's it's a marriage. Um, the marriage of Venice and the ocean, right? Um, that is, Venice is itself a liminal space, a boundary space. Venice is neither fully ocean nor fully land, right? Um... It is, in this way, one of the queerest cities in the world, right? Um, the way in which Venice anticipates, where you know, in which the thing which makes Venice the perfect setting for so much of the latter portion of this book um, is really sort of hinted at in this first description of this. Uh, um, in the first description of this painting. Um, yeah, Tom Hillman says it's a place where perspective is everything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So, 
I get so many things that we can s- that kind of make much more sense when we come through the second time. But again, what I would emphasize is that position as uh, as the 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 boundary land, right? The place of contact between these things. Um, look what um, Jonathan Strange does. Mister Norrell associates the Venetian gondola with the slipper of a lady in mourning, right? So we're talking about he's associating it with ladies and with death, right? Um, which, in the context of uh, poor, consumptive Miss Wintertown, is perhaps not a huge uh, leap. Remember what Jonathan Strange associates them with? I thought how much they resembled the black-painted, black-curtained conjuring boxes of my childhood, the sort of boxes into which quack sorcerers would put county people's handkerchiefs and coins and lockets. Sometimes these articles could never be got back, for which the sorcerer was always very sorry. But fairy spirit, sir, is very giddy, waxacious creatures. And all the nursemaids and kitchenmaids I ever knew when I was a child always had an aunt who knew a woman whose first cousin's boy had been put into just such a box and had never been seen again. Standing on the quayside at Mestra, I had a horrible notion that when the Greysteels got to Venice, they would open up the gondola that should have conveyed me there and find nothing inside. This idea took hold of me so strongly that for some minutes I forgot to think of anything else, and there were actual tears standing in my eyes, which I think may serve to show how nervous I have become. He doesn't associate it with the slippers of ladies in mourning. He associates it with a conjuring box of a quack sorcerer, right? Um, A tool of the charlatan magician's art, and yet associated in tradition with fairies and fairy spirits, right? That is, the quack sorcerer associates it that way, right? If you put something valuable in it and then it can't be found again, well, that's just the that's just the giddy and vexatious fairy spirit, right, who did that. But, of course, it's clearly part of folk tradition that humans can be put into the box and might be taken into fairy. That's one of the oldest things that we've seen. Remember, you know, ever since the... Uh, uh, the gentlemen of the uh, learned society of York magicians had the improbable fear that they were going to be abducted by fairies way back at the beginning. We have had this idea of humans being drawn into fairy, of crossing that line. Um, and that's so that sight, that sight of magic, but of useless magic, even of deceptive magic, right? Magic that's used merely to con people out of their valuables, which of course seems to be, in in associating with himself in the way that he is, um, seems to be a kind of, not exactly, not an earnest indictment of his own magic, but um, certainly shows, remember how he keeps saying that compared to the Raven King, compared to fairy magic, everything that he and Mr. Norrell do is a mere nothing, right? He is like one of the quack sorcerers compared to fairy magic, and yet there's also this chance that if he goes into the gondola, there will be nothing there, right? He's going to be uh, he's going to be abducted. Uh, both Philip Lord and Sharon Hoffer observing the absence of yellow curtains. It's true, yeah. I, I wondered if maybe there was a yellow lining or something in the conjuring box. I don't know. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, exactly. He so it, again, it's quack the. Uh, a vessel that is used as it is an instrument of quack of quackery, and yet it's um, possibly a vehicle by which, or a sort of the portal 
to fairy itself. And again, that seems like an interesting characterization of his own magic. Not only showing us how his own magic is at least potentially connected with that crossover to fairy and will become much more actively so as we move forward, but that um, it's this is about Venice itself, right? Back to that painting um, uh, with the uh, with the the gondola, um, and of course it is appropriately enough, therefore, Venice which Jonathan Strange chooses as the place where he's going to actively attempt to reach across that boundary. Um, Remember where he sort of gets an idea about this, about how to do this? About where is the boundary between England and Ferry most thin, right? Where do you find sort of windows and uh, and and you know sort of uh, you know peepholes between the two? Well, insanity, right? Um, this is in his conversation with uh, Sir Walter Pole, and of course, uh, um, uh, Mr. Strange, uh, Jonathan Strange, is to uh, is to discreet, too gentlemanly, too, uh, too honorable to mention that this is King George, right? Um, but your companion saw the fairy. Why? Oh, I know why. There was something very particular about him which enabled him to see fairies. Well, can you not use that somehow? Strange considered this. I do not see how. It is a mere chance, like one man having blue eyes and another brown. He was silent a moment, musing. But then again, perhaps not. Perhaps you are right. It is not such a very outlandish notion when you come to consider it. Think of the Oriots. Some of them were the fairies' near neighbors in wildness and madness. Think of Ralph Stokesy and his fairy servant called Tom Blue. When Stokesy, when Stokesy was a young man, there was scarcely anything to choose between them. Perhaps I am too tame, too domestic a magician. But how does one work up a little madness? I meet with mad people every day in the street, but I never thought before to wonder how they got mad. Perhaps I should go wandering on lonely moors and barren shores. That is always a popular place for lunatics, in novels and plays at any rate. Perhaps Wild England will make me mad. What do we see in Wild England, right? We see Wild England talking to the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, right? We see him speaking the language of Wild England, right? Well, maybe... So, Wild England making you mad, maybe that actually translates to Wild England teaching you its language, right? Yeah, John Molina, I agree, Vinculus is pretty wild. Anyway, Strange got up and went to the drawing-room window as if he expected to be able to survey Wild England from there, although all it showed was the very ordinary sight of Soho Square in a thick and mizzling rain. I think you have may have you may have hit upon something, Paul. Um, it's not as easy as walking to the window, but maybe there is a window that you can see through. Perhaps he can use madness. He knows that madness is the correlation, right? Um, I love the parallel here, right? Um, uh, Sarah Lagarde says, Strange wants to walk on the other side of the rain. Yeah, that's cool. Um, notice the, the the interesting 
parallel, the interesting contrast, right? When Norrell leaves Yorkshire and comes to London, uh, and he's trying to set himself up in a respectable house so that magicians will be seen as a respectable, you know, magic will be seen as a respectable profession, um, you know, on a level uh, with the law and far more respectable than medicine, right? Um, we see Strange wanting to do exactly the opposite, right? To leave London and go out to the wilds, um, to leave respectability and to seek madness. That's the connection. That's the real connection to magic. And again, who's right? Strange or Norrell? Um, on the one hand, you know, Norrell's cautions about the Raven King, about fairies, seem to be um, well taken. And yet, uh, Strange is also, you know, well, Sir Walter Pohl and, and Strange through him are genuinely onto something here, right? Um, it's, it's about perspective. It's about changing your perspective. That, uh, you know, the, 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 that change in outlook that madness brings you, right? More on this next time. But, um, Let's, let's so let's hold on to that for a second. But look at what happens when he actually tries to, with his magic to reach across the border into fairy. When he's trying to to uh, um, conjure a fairy servant, to summon a fairy servant. Um, here's this: what happens when he casts this spell, which uses his own blood. It's interestingly, right. I don't see this as a very direct parallel to the blood which spontaneously oozes out of the pores of the the poor girl from Allendale, but anyway. It so happened that there was some white cloth lying bundled up on top of the table. It was a nightshirt, which Arabella had sewn in the early years of their marriage. Without realizing what it was, Strange reached out for it. He had almost grasped it. Just he's going to staunch his bloody wound, right? He cut himself uh, as part of the spell. He had almost grasped it when Stephen Black stepped out of the shadows and handed him a rag. Stephen accompanied the action with that faint half-bow that is second nature to a well-trained servant. Strange took the rag and mopped up the blood somewhat ineffectually, but of Stephen's presence in the room he appeared to know nothing at all. Stephen picked up the nightshirt, shook out the creases, carefully folded it up, and placed it neatly on a stool in the corner. Strange threw himself back into his chair, caught the damaged part of his arm up upon the edge of the table, swore again, and covered his face with his hands. What in the world is he trying to do? asked Stephen Black in a hushed tone. What do we see? What do we learn here? I love this passage. I love this passage. Stephen is a good guy, Carita, I agree. We definitely learn that. What else? What else? Jonathan reaches across the boundary, right? He's trying to draw a fairy to him across that boundary. And he succeeds, right? Apparently. Let's pause for a second and in order not to take something for granted... This whole scene has been describing Jonathan's magic, right? Jonathan is sitting there doing magic. He's writing spells. He's crumpling them up. He's throwing them out the window. 
Um, he's performing this. Ma- he's cutting himself, you know, with blades, performing this magic. We get the description of Jonathan Strange doing magic. When does Stephen Black get there? Notice how Stephen Black is introduced. For the first three sentences of this paragraph, we're in exactly the same spot that we've been through this whole scene, right? This is just Jonathan is alone, right? This is a description of what Jonathan Strange is doing alone in his room as he's attempting to do magic. And then halfway through a sentence, without a word of explanation, he had almost grasped it when Stephen Black stepped out of the shadows and handed him a rag. Wait, what? Am I going crazy? Right? Am I mad? Well, Stephen Black isn't there. How did Stephen Black get there? When did Stephen Black get there? And why is Stephen Black stepping out of the shadows and handing him a rag? Well, because he's a nice guy. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. He does, Neil, he does seem to step out of fairy. I agree. Um... Notice the disconnection here, right? Again, we as readers might... I mean, if we're following along here, doesn't this narration seems mad. But no, it's not mad. There's a connection here. What's the connection? The gentleman with the thistle-down hair, right? The fact that he would be bringing Stephen along with him and, and Jonathan Strange's magic, right? the effect of which is unperceived by him. And yet, we can see it, right? Or rather, we can see its effects, even though he cannot, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I love the way this transition is just thrown in on us. We're never, we're not told when they arrive. We just all of a sudden see them. Like King George saw the gentleman with the thistle down hair. Right? He could perceive him. Strange could not. Now Strange cannot perceive them, but we can. Right? We are in the position of George III. We're the insane ones now. Or at least we would sound insane to anybody who asked us. Right? Um, I mean, if we were giving an account, we would, people would say we were mad, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's, some people are wanting to think a little bit more about Jonathan's spell. Let's, let's, uh, let's keep going. This is immediately just the next paragraph right after that. Oh, he's attempting to summon me, declared the gentleman with the thistle-down hair. He wishes to ask me all sorts of questions about magic. But there is no need to whisper, my dear Stephen. He can neither see you nor hear you. They are so ridiculous, these English magicians. They do everything in such a roundabout way. I tell you, Stephen, watching this fellow try to do magic is like watching a man sit down to eat his dinner with his coat on backwards, a blindfold round his eyes, and a bucket over his head. 
When did you ever see me perform such nonsensical tricks? Draw forth my own blood or scribble words on paper. Whenever I wish to do something, I merely speak to the air, or to the stones, or to the sunlight, or to the sea, or to wh whatever it is, and politely request them to help me. And then, since my alliances with these powerful spirits were set in place thousands of years ago, they are only too glad to do whatever I ask. I see, said Stephen. But though the magician is ignorant, he has still succeeded. After all, you are here, sir, are you not? Yes, I dare say, said the gentleman in an irritated tone. But that does not detract from the fact that the magic that brought me here is clumsy and inelegant. Besides, what does it profit him? Nothing. I do not choose to show myself to him, and he knows no magic to counteract that. Stephen, quick, turn the pages of that book. There is no breeze in the room, and it will perplex him beyond anything. Ha! See how he stares. He half suspects that we are here, but he cannot see us. Ha-ha! How, how angry he is becoming! Give his neck a sharp pinch. He will think it is a mosquito. Brian Dimmick says, When you are mad, your perceptions can change unexpectedly, and you might not think it strange. Yes, but Brian, don't we take that... When, when we're reading it, don't we take the arrival of Stephen Black... In, I mean, just the way that just flows in stride, right? He comes in and he acts in exactly the way that we would expect Stephen to act. We almost have to pause for a second to say, wait a second, where did he come from, right? Um... That's that's to me what so perfectly imitates the the sort of experience of madness, right? Um, yeah, John Moline says the summoning spell doesn't compel the fairy to show himself. It seems uh, an inappropriate. It seems an incomplete spell. Yeah, it is incomplete. Remember, poor Jonathan. He's making this stuff up as he goes. Right? He's piecing this stuff together. You know. It's, so yeah, he. He has achieved halfway success, though he doesn't realize it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Philip Menzies suggests it's the author who is mad. Uh, possibly. Of course, one can't rule that out. Um, yeah. Good. Uh, John points out that our magic, of course, is all very inelegant. It's a pale imitation of his magic. Um, and... Uh, in this case, not even exactly an imitation. That is, he, des he describes the method of his magic, and Strange isn't really doing anything quite like that. Um, one thing that I thought was really neat, remember, remember the way that Jonathan Strange talks about the Raven King, right? The kind of um, hyperbole that he uses to, to talk about the Raven King? Um... the gentleman uses the same kind of hyperbole to describe the incompetence of the English magician, right? But Stephen himself, sort of, rather gently, right? But uh, though the magician is ignorant, he has still succeeded. After all, you are here, sir, are you not, right? You can talk all you like about how incompetent he is, but um, his magic worked on you, right? Um, this sort of very gently, uh, this sort of very gentle thing, right? Um, anyway, um, 
So we see Jonathan's spell working. We see him now actively attempting to reach across that boundary into fairy and bring it to him. And we see him... So we see his his idea about madness being a root. We see his desire and attempt and even success in reaching over and bringing fairy to him. But it is not yet perfect, right? It's still... Uh, it, he, he's not there yet, but he's getting close. But remember... This is dangerous, right? Again, have we become strangeites by this point, right? Are we just excited about Jonathan? Is he doing the right thing? Is this this is clearly he's clearly right here? He is on the right track as far as English magic is concerned, and Mister Norrell is wrong, right? Mister Norrell is just all a, f- a closed-minded fuddy-duddy, right? Well, let's uh, go way back here to the opening chapters. This is um, in one of the very first conversations he has with Lascelles. And what of your fairy servants, sir, said Mr. Lascelles? Are they visible only to yourself, or many, or may other people perceive them? Mr. Norrell sniffed and said he had none. What none? exclaimed a lady in, car- in a carnation pink gown, much surprised. You are wise, Mr. Norrell, said Mr. Lascelles. Tubbs versus Starhouse must stand as a warning to all magicians. Mr. Tubbs was no magician, said Mr. Norrell, nor did I ever hear that he claimed to be one. But he had been the greatest magician in... But had he been the greatest magician in Christendom, I would st- he would still have been wrong to wish for the company of fairies. A more poisonous race, or one more inimical to England, has never existed. There have been far too many magicians, too idle or, or ignorant to pursue a proper course of study, who instead bent all their energies upon acquiring a fairy servant. And when they had got such a servant, they depended upon him to complete all their business for them. English history is full of such men, and some, I am glad to say, were punished for it as they deserved. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there have been some magicians who have, instead of pursuing a proper course of study, have instead bent all their energies upon acquiring a fairy servant. Of course, some of those magicians might have had the very good excuse that a proper course of study was impossible to them because somebody has kept all the books to himself and won't share them, right? But nevertheless, the point remains, right? And that last sentence... Uh, I, when I got to this passage reading through the book the second time, that last passage really... Like, there's sometimes, you know, when reading a book for a second time, that certain sentences just kind of jump out like they're in uh, like they're in reverb, right? You know, some, I'm glad to say, were punished for it as they deserved. Oh, dear. Um... A more poisonous race, or one more inimical to England, has never existed. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, Karita, I think it's a good way to say it. Karita says, Norrell is a close-minded fuddy-duddy, but he's not just a close-minded fuddy-duddy. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Neil Altenstein would also point out that, in fairness, there are some people who might be appropriately punished for using a fairy to bring somebody back from the dead. Uh, that, of course, also is true and also makes Mr. Norrell's statement particularly ironic here. Um, our final consideration when thinking about the boundaries between England and Ferry here tonight, um, I want to do as I uh, um, said we would and look at uh, Childemus in the square. Um, 
this is another one of those passages where I wanted to quote like four pages in a row, um, but I haven't. What I have quoted is the passages which interrupt the text in italics, right? So we get, you know, sort of uh, Childermas seeing and perceiving and thinking and acting in normal ways in the house in Hanover Square, right, in England. And then we get this interjection by these other things that kind of are breaking through to him. The birds were like black letters against the gray of the sky. He thought that in a moment he would understand what the writing meant. By the way, observations, associations, what are things we should be thinking of as we go through here? My question, as I said at the beginning of class, my question for this scene is going to be, what's going on here? What is going on? The stones in the ancient road were symbols for telling the traveler's journey. And then later, the brown fields were partly flooded. They were strung with chains of chill gray pools. The pattern of the pools had meaning. The pools had been written onto the fields by the rain. The pools were a magic worked by the rain, just as the tumbling of the blackbirds against the gray was a spell that the sky was working, and the motion of gray-brown grasses was a spell that the wind made. Everything had meaning. And then later, the sky spoke to him again. This time he thought it was a question. Great consequences hung upon his answer. If he could just understand what was being asked, and find the correct words in which to frame his reply, then something would be revealed, something that would change English magic forever, something that Strange and Norrell had not even guessed at yet. For a long moment he struggled to understand. The language or spell seemed tantalizingly familiar now. In a moment he thought he would grasp it. After all, the world had been speaking these words to him every day of his life. It was just that he had not noticed it before. Yeah, Janice, I love Childermas, too. You know, when I first read the book, when I first got to Childermas, um, I assumed that Childermas was a fairy servant. Um, well, not assumed. My initial conclusion... My uh, my first premise, because we had had references to fairy servants before, and that magicians had fairy servants, and so when we first meet Mister Norrell, Tildemus is standing there in the room, and he's looking all smug, and and uh, he seems to have a totally different attitude than everybody else in the room. Seemed kind of weird, not acting like the other human beings in the room were acting. I to- and then when I see he, when he's the one who's sent in to. Uh, uh, you know, sort of do Mr. Norrell's dirty work, I totally thought that Childermas was a fairy, um, which uh, seems not quite to be true. But, um, but so, but more, what kind of associations do we get here? How do we understand what's going on here? Um, Everything had meaning. The pools were a magic worked by the rain. Right? The pools had been written onto the fields by the rain. What should we remember? That sound familiar? Recognize anything? The pools had been written onto the fields by the rain. The pools were a magic worked by the rain. Where have we seen that? We've seen it. Where? Anybody? Anybody remember? Think of the Duke of Wellington. Strange did this. 
Strange did magic just like that. Remember when he transported this city to uh, to America uh, in order to avoid the oncoming French army? And uh, he had to send the dispatches of, of uh, Wellington by magic. One of the ways in which he sends one of the messages is the, the, the rain falls in the pattern of the letters that gives the Duke of Wellington's uh, orders. Remember, one of the others is spelt in, in icing on the cupcakes, right? Uh, one of the dispatches is, one of them, the birds are singing, right? They can understand what the birds are They can understand the language of the birds. And what the birds are saying is a really comical dog roll rhyme. I love the rhyme that the birds are saying. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, um, I can't remember all the lines now, but I love the one, the one that rhymes with brigade. Uh, but anyhow, um, you could understand the language of birds, right? The, 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 the rain spells out letters upon the ground, right? But of course, we should also be thinking of the we should also be thinking of the gentleman, right, and his understanding. Um Tom Hillman suggests it's almost like a reversal, right? Um just as the world listens when the fairy sings, so now here Childemus is listening to the whole world speaking to him, right? Um yes, yes, it is a lot like that. It is also like Somebody said it. Yes, Philip Menzies. Absolutely. Um, the birds were like black letters against the gray of the sky. He thought in a moment he would understand what the writing meant. Why doesn't he understand the writing? I mean, if the birds are like black letters against the sky, why can't he read them? What kind of letters... What kind of letters would blackbirds against the sky make? If you were a blackbird, and you were forming letters against the sky, you would use the Raven King's private writing language, of course, which most perfectly expressed the Raven King's thought and his magic, right? You'd use the king's letters. Absolutely you would. Um, what is the question... That's a, an un, that, you know, he, he, so he thinks it's a question when the sky speaks. What does the sky say? Oh, wait. It's another Bible parallel. This is a really obscure one. Anybody get the Bible parallel? Huge bonus points. Book of Revelation. Um, uh, John, the divine, hears voices speaking in the thunder, and he goes to write down what the thunder said, but the angel says, stop and write it not. Um, so uh, the, 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 the mystery of what the thunder was attempting to reveal to St. John the Divine is not written in the book of Revelation because he was forbidden to write down. Um, which is why in one of the best titles ever, um, one of the... Uh, um, uh, uh, T.S. Eliot uses that. You know, he calls part of one of his poems "What the Thunder Said." Uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's an awesome title. But anyhow, um, okay. So uh, he thinks this guy is a question, right? Very good. Um, 
several of you are quoting Vinculus's prophecy, which is exactly right. Magic shall be written upon the sky by the rain, but they shall not be able to read it. Magic shall be written on the faces of the stony hills, but their minds shall not be able to contain it. In winter the barren trees shall be a black writing, but they shall not understand it. Thank you, Nancy, for typing that out for me. Um, yes, exactly. Um, oops, sorry about that. So what do we see? What are we seeing here? We might not know exactly what the question was. But what's happening here? Um, If he could understand what was being asked and find the correct words, then something would be revealed. Something that would change English magic forever. Oh, sorry. Um, Something that would change English magic forever. Um, What's happening? Who's speaking? This guy is speaking. The birds are speaking. How is English magic going to be changed forever? Something that Strange and Norrell had not even guessed yet. Um, Nancy says, England, the Raven King. Both right, I would say. Um, yeah, that's my money's on England, which means the Raven King. Yeah, this is English magic. English magic itself is speaking to him, right? That English magic which left. Remember the the um, and Neil is talking about the alliances. Yes, remember the gentleman talking about how he's had alliances with those powerful spirits. You know, the sunlight and the 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 sky and all those things for thousands of years. Right, And so, naturally, they're more than happy to do whatever he asks them to do. That's how his magic works. Why did magic leave when the Raven King left? Why did English magic perish, or at least fade? Um, Because the Raven King had alliances with all of those things. If those alliances were to be renewed, then yes... It would change English magic forever, and no, Strange and Norrell have not guessed at that. Um, So what the heck is going on in this scene? Why does Lady Pole shoot Mr. Norrell? I mean, I get why Lady Pole wants to shoot Mr. Norrell, but why does she shoot Mr. Norrell? What happens there in that scene? Is this just... Lady Pole has just gone around the bend? Right? Poor Lady Pole just can't take it anymore. She blames Mr. Norrell for her sufferings, and so she just decides to take one of her husband's dueling pistols and come over here and put a cap in Mr. Norrell. Right? That's... Is that what happened? Is that what just happened here? It's plain that that's not what happened here. She is not acting in her own volition. And we have two very good reasons to think that. One, we are told that she didn't do it on purpose, right? Um, isn't it Stephen who says something, you know, something like that, you know, he, like they believe that she shot Mr. Norrell, right? They, like they think she's responsible for that action. Stephen knows she's not responsible, right? Um... But, uh, yeah, you know, that scene, I, I, uh, 
I think I didn't I didn't fully part. I was so entranced by the whole Childermas thing when I first read this passage that I kind of I the actions of Lady Pole herself kind of went past me. Also, I didn't know it was Lady Pole, so I didn't quite know what to expect. But like that the fight scene, right when they're all like bouncing, and she's I I was like the second time I was reading it, I was imagining Lady Pole like. Uh, you know, fighting with like Matrix-like special effects. But anyway, um, uh, apart from the fact that Stephen knows that um, she didn't do it, on, that this didn't come from her, we know that, right? Childermas knows magic is being done. If even apart from the fact that he's being having the visions or whatever it is that he's having. Um, apart from that, Childemus is casting that spell, right, which detects the presence of magic, and the, the goblet is glowing like a beacon, right? There's magic going on. So it's the gentleman's magic, right? The gentleman with the thistle-down hair has coerced, compelled Lady Pole to go and shoot Mr. Norrell. Well, that makes sense. We know he is uh, the enemy of um, the magicians, right? He wants them gone. He wants to make them suffer. But does that explain it? Does that explain it all? I'm not sure it does explain it all. I'm not at all sure that it explains it all. Especially since this doesn't sound like a message from the gentleman with the thistle-down hair. Right? This sounds like a message from the Raven King. He, Childemus, seemed to be perceiving something fundamentally different. Right? Um, I don't doubt that the gentleman has long-standing alliances with the sky and the birds and everybody else. But he's not the only one with alliances there. And it's possible, it seems. Especially given how... Remember perspective, right? One of the other things that we know, we haven't even really talked about this, about the thing that is often recalled um, about the the gentleman's perspective is that he's always focused on himself, right? He's always thinking of himself. Um, yeah. Yeah, he... Um, uh, everything's about him. Right, he's the center of all things. Maybe he's not the center of all things. Maybe he thinks that this is... Maybe he is manipulating Lady Paul. Sure. But maybe he himself is being manipulated. And he doesn't even understand that. Um, I don't know. Seems to be possible. Um, maybe the Raven King's magic is more directly involved. And this is the Raven King reaching out to Childemus himself. Dunno! But it's really fun to think about. Um, more on this next time. I want to come back to Vinculus. I want to look at Vinculus and Stephen and the, the sort of the third leg of Vinculus' uh, uh, prophetic journey here um, uh, when he meets Stephen Black. And of course, more on Strange and Madness next time. Um, so, uh, of course, I, I, I obviously we're going to get to that. So be focusing on that as you read the next few chapters.